Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brillet. Coming up on today's program here on Dufostrasse in Zurich. So many guests today. Juliet Lindley, Flori Negley, also Chandra Curtis here. Juliet's here with some views. I'm not sure what it's about. Is it school holidays and you're angry about a holiday on Wednesday, I've heard? But it's not going to be that, is it? No, I think think we'll talk about that Wednesday holiday perhaps later. But um, yes, Europe's abuzz with talk of honey laundering. Oh. And maybe we shouldn't be self-diagnosing um, sort of mental issues on TikTok. We can maybe debate that. We could, I think, most definitely. <laughs> also, we're going to be speaking to our design editor, Nick Moniz, about all that happened in Milan. Hello, Tyler Berlay and company in Zurich. Uh, we're, we're calling in from Midori House in London, and I am ready to break down the week that was. Very good. Thanks very much for that, Nick. Also, we're going to be going to Bangkok to hear from our correspondent there, Gwen Robinson. Plus, we'll speak to the deputy head of radio, and that's, of course, Monocle Monocle Radio, indeed, Tom Webb, about the International Journalism Festival in Perugia in Italy. It's the 23rd of April, 2023. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brulé. And good morning from a somewhat uh, damp, uh, but I think promise of sunshiny type of Zurich. Uh, this morning, I'm very happy to say that uh, Chandra Kurt has, has just arrived in studio. Uh, Florian Egli uh, from the think tank Four House is here. Also, Juliet Lindley uh, from around the corner. Pedal Power uh, as well this morning. Good morning, everybody. Chandra, very nice to see you. It's been such a long time. We've been t- attempting to track you down, but you're in London and you're in vineyards elsewhere. Good morning. Very nice to Good see morning, you. Good morning, Tyler. It's lovely to be here. Yeah. And now just tell us, uh, your, tell us about your commute to get here this morning because well, there's, there's, there's signs up all over the city. I mean, everyone wh- has known about this marathon coming, so we were a little bit concerned, but we knew you would make it and you did in, in classic. This is the problem when you when you when you're too much traveling around and forgetting that Zurich is a city that every weekend there is like a manifestation or a party or a, a sport events and I didn't know that there is a what is it today a marathon? It's a marathon. Yeah. So the thing is that uh, all the streets to come here were blocked and so my calculated time didn't really fit and then when I arrived here there are no parkings. Well, the parkings are closed. But even here, in, out in front. So I parked now Grossenbacher Blumengeschäft. I'm sorry, I parked on your parking. I hope it's okay. It's it's fine as long as long as you go and buy some. I know a bunch of peenies tomorrow morning or something like that. You'll you'll be absolutely fine. Flori Negley, good morning. Very nice to see you. Normal again. Usually it's a very long time. I don't see you for months, but I just I saw you on Wednesday. No, don't no, choose. Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday in Milan. In in lovely Milan, 25 degrees, you know, gorgeous. Out in the summer is happening somewhere in Europe, not on this side of the Alps. No, That's Thursday I was in Munich and I was shocked, yeah. like from 25 to 5 degrees. And it was, yeah, but Milan was very nice. And look at Juliet Lindley in like the biggest jumper with the biggest, <laughs> my ski with the biggest off. weave I've ever seen. Good morning. Very nice to <laughs> see you. I couldn't resist. I had to bike in, as you said, and it was really chilly. Actually, I should have put on mittens, but I didn't. But the length of that, so there's a danger it could sort of get caught in the chain or the wheel or something. You're right. I am wearing a knee length sweater for our listeners who are, of course, curious about my choice of outfit today. They're probably also wondering why I'm mad about Wednesday. My kid's not going to school. Tell us quickly. Why are, they, why are you angry? About no, so our children go to international school in a town called Zumicon, not necessarily well known around the world except for the fact that Switzerland's first female cabinet minister is from there. She recently passed away so they've shut down the entire town including our school for a memorial service. So um, the thing about Elizabeth Cott was it was great that she was um, the first cabinet me- member in uh, what was it 1984 mm. but unfortunately she sort of was brought down by a political scandal in which she put in a phone call to her husband who was on the board of a business a, a company that was going to be investigated and so yeah phone taps meant that she then had to resign. 
five years later. And of course, it's meant many, many years later that you have to look after your kids on a Wednesday. Yes. Homeschooling, though, thank God for that. But look Thanks at all for the, the space pandemic. we have here. We could also we could have a continuing education Wait, program. Wait, it does right say here that you do not play here well, on the no, radio listen, studio listeners, we, ha- we do table. we do have a, a big sign on the table because big. I think people can tell that obviously it's an integrated space where we have obviously people having coffees and everything in the background. But a lot of people think that just because they see sort of apparatus, microphones, they think it's a playground for their kids. Yeah, their not. toddlers are not, not welcome. Absolutely not. Clearly not. On the topic of Milan, uh, our Nick Manise, uh, you, you met Nick, didn't you? Very, did. very, very, very swiftly uh, in Milan. Our design editor was there. He was pounding the pavements and the holes and, and everything else. He's now back in London. He's at Midori House this morning. Good morning, Nick. Good morning, Tyler. Uh, tell us uh, how was, was it seven days, eight days on, on the trot there? I mean, you, you, you really committed with also a merry band of, uh, of other uh, Monocle correspondents and editors as well. Yeah, Sunday, Sunday to Saturday. And I think I was averaging about four and a half hours sleep, which... Uh, Doesn't you know, sound like it, does it, listeners? No. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> but I mean, it, it's one of those things, there, there are so many things happening in Milan. It is so incredible uh, that I, I just felt like I, I, I didn't want to miss out on anything. So every single night, really, it, it's mostly my colleagues to blame, actually, if I'm going to be perfectly honest. We had uh, Ed Stocker, Grace Charlton uh, from Midori House, in town and then all our all our Italian correspondents uh, and and it seemed like every single night it's like oh, we'll just go out for for one drink uh, and very quickly uh, that would turn into about five or seven or ten so it's it's I, I don't want to take any personal responsibility for my lack of sleep uh, no. but I, it's just because I'm a team player I want that okay. to be known Okay, so let's rewind to maybe last Sunday. It seems that every single year the Salone starts a little bit earlier uh, because yeah, you start getting invites. Thinking, okay, well, yeah, maybe a couple of people want to do a little sneak preview. You'll inv- get invited to a dinner on a Sunday, uh, even though it doesn't you know kick off till whatever Tuesday. Hours. Yeah, Tuesday officially. <laughs> but then now you're, now you're getting invites for events on the Friday, so it's turned into almost like a ten day festival, hasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, uh, yeah, I, I did go on the Sunday, but I had uh, invites for dinner on Friday and Saturday as well, and it's uh, you know I don't know. If I could have done two extra days at that pace, um, but I, I think it, it's it's it does make sense this kind of creeping forward, given that there is so much uh, going on in in terms of you know obviously you've got two thousand different exhibitors at the uh, trade halls uh, combined with what feels like a, a thousand different shows across the across the city. So to actually see everything, you, you kind of can't pack it into the to the seven or actually the the six scheduled days that they have. You, you kind of do need those extra days to to go and see everything. So tell us highlights, maybe sort of overarching themes, not necessarily design themes. I'm thinking more about markets, uh, who was attending, uh, what was the buzz, who's buying. Uh, of course, I think one of the, let's say, the overarching trends we've seen is that it's really moved you know, far beyond being a festival focused you know, solely on furniture and, and maybe smaller items, items of industrial design. Uh, it has been, you've got everything from aircraft manufacturers to car companies uh, to financial services players. Everybody wants to be part of this now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, this huge sort of shift. It, it's about, I mean, I guess, firstly, to, to start, I, I mean, you see these big fashion brands coming in and, and you know, putting on these amazing uh, shows in terms of, you know, amazing take over a, a gymnasium event space every year with a, with a beautiful installation uh, and and I guess that kind of link makes sense in terms of 
you know, fashion and design is sort of <laughs> a, a, a capital or a home in Milan. But I think, like you said, all these other other players, I guess, sort of coming in, you know, how do you do this amazing experience, experiential experiential space where you can walk through and, and better understand their vehicles. Maserati launches a, a new car this week. It's it's sort of really a, a hub for anything that is, is linked or an event for anything that is linked to, I guess, quality in terms of manufacturing and making, which I, I guess does make sense. Um so, so some of the highlights for me, obviously beyond the beyond the trade hall, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment, but there's this real uh, eagerness I, I feel from from brands or even from curators in Milan to sort of open up the city uh, to to the public and to designers. You know, it's 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 a city of hidden courtyards, which is amazing. Uh, but this is really a week that that gives people a chance to actually get in and see them. So, the team behind Alcova, uh, who we've you know covered many times on on Monocle Radio and and uh, in our in our dedicated Salona del Mobile newspaper they in previous years they've activated a, a host of different spaces or abandoned spaces across the city uh, from a, a former bakery warehouse to a, a military hospital that was no longer in use this year they shifted into a, a former abattoir and have completely transformed that campus prior to a new developer coming in who, who's going to turn it into into housing so it was a chance for people to see these hidden spaces so too uh, I guess polyform took over a, a lovely lovely uh, cloister is Chiostri di San Siplicano Ciano, which in the city had never been open to the public, still used by monks, but it's it's a chance for people to go in and see, I guess, Polyform's wares in and amongst the uh, in and amongst uh, these these amazing cloisters, which you'd never get to normally. So, it's it's not only a, a host of different players from a host of different industries, uh, you know, I guess using Milan as a, as a chance to open up to the world, but also the actual city opening up to the world as well. And just from a market point of view, because we know that some parts of the world have been a little bit slower to recover, it's strange to be talking about the world opening up, but you felt last year that there wasn't the force of Asia, but I, I definitely noticed that there were large delegations of Koreans this year, for sure. Um, we, I, you know, I noticed some Japanese editors uh, were back, obviously some of the Japanese furniture brands um, as well. But what's, what is sort of the, the conversation you know, at a time when everyone is so focused on just the boom in hospitality, and my goodness, the prices that uh, hotels in Milan were able to to get away with was quite something but uh, when, when you sort of think about the the sectors that were there spending or markets around the world um, what were you hearing from the CEOs the brand owners the CMOs that you're talking to Nick well if, if you want to see the Asia representation you just had to go to the trade hall at, at, at Ro Fiera it was really really packed with buyers from Japan from Korea as you said I, I met some people from Thailand as well it's it's and these are the big players this is you know I think it's very easy to get seduced uh, by the beauty of Alcova, and don't get me wrong, that, that is an essential stop for anyone uh, going to Milan Design Week and, and Salone del Mobile Week. But really, the business is taking place at the fair, and you see that. And you have these delegations of, you know, maybe in the, in the city you've got very kind of cool-looking designers, but certainly at the trade fair, it is business, business, business. Uh, you know, you've got Japanese, you know, the Japanese delegations turning out in their their, their beautiful suits, and and so too the Koreans talking. You know, and this this fair is about mass buying beautifully produced furniture. So you've got developers there looking to furnish new hotels and new office office developments, and they're really looking for the best. It's it's and the reason it's appealing is because you you can kind of get the whole gamut, the whole spectrum of all the all these brands in one place, and it's it's this 
really almost beautiful uh, competitive moment for for the brands as well. I, I spoke to Maria Poro, who's the president of the of the whole Salona del Mobile trade fair, and she said, "Look, the showrooms are one thing, but if you want to see if your products really stand up uh, against your competitors, you need to be in the trade halls, side by side, jostling for position, jostling for the attention of these of these buyers from from across the globe, because we're talking, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of, of euros worth of purchases being made uh, based off a, a simple conversation and maybe a, a quick comparison." with what's, what's being shown next door. Nick, I just want to pick up on the, the topic of being sartorially sharp. All of those uh, Japanese uh, brand owners, buyers, as you said, looking you know fantastic, you know in their suits. Because you might I mean, you might have heard this when you were chatting to to Florian uh, when, when he pulled up, because he he said he arrived on the train from Geneva and said as soon as he sort of stepped out in the station, as soon as he stepped out into Milan, so all of the the wonderfully dressed people, he said he felt like a complete pig. And um, is that what you said? Was it? Did you say you felt like a pig? Yeah, it's nice paraphrasing. Like <laughs> well, I, I saw him and I tend to agree. So yeah. <laughs> And, and you and you up until that moment, he was a Salona virgin as well. So this is the first time that he'd ever, ever attended. But uh, Florian, aside from, of course, hot looking people all over Milan, in summary, under summary skies, uh, what was your what was your impression hey, my, as, as, a, as a think tanker? My impression was great, but I was wanted to make that link into like uh, policy and think tank space, because um, as you guys were talking about that, this is, is becoming more than, you know, just in parentheses. Um, a salone um, about furniture or, or like industrial design in, in a narrow sense. I think um, there is really a lot of scope, which I haven't seen much on, on how do we design spaces, um, particularly also to have conversations, to have negotiations, um, you know, in that whole like international policy world. And that's a lot about design, but everybody is constantly just ignoring it. I mean, go to the UN. Um, I mean, I've been to the UN in Vienna for, like, let's say, like a month ago or something for some um, um, conversations and negotiations. And it's just appalling. I mean, all these buildings are from the 60s and uh, like, the infrastructure. It's just nothing is, you know, nothing has this, this beauty and this haptic of that you want to stay there and that you want to actually achieve something. So I think there will be a huge space there, um, you know, for places like the Salone to think more about how do we actually convene and how do we set the scene um, for, for ambitious things to happen. And, and that's something that, that you know, I, I'd like to see. But um, of course, aside from that, it was great. Um, many, many nice aperos, um, you know, <laughs> um, also great design. I love the, uh, the rainbow exhibition um, at the Museo delle Arte, um, which is the most beautiful carpet I've ever seen in my life uh, with like a, a beautifully kind of rainbow color fading into each other. So, I mean, many, many great things. Uh, just uh, very quickly, uh, before we, we move on, uh, we haven't had Chandra around the mics for a while, which means we haven't had, of course, wine recommendations and tips. Springtime, uh, it is, I believe, it's well, it looks like it's getting sunny already here. Uh, so there might be might be a moment. Um, Flo, I'm going to start with, with you, um, and then Emma, I'll, co- I'll come to you next. So I don't know what your plan is this afternoon. Maybe it's for later in the week. Uh, what would you like to know from uh, the, the font of knowledge that is, that is Chandra Kurt when it comes to uh, all things wine-related? Chandra, good morning, and how lovely it is to oh, wait, hear hey, 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 Wait, <laughs> the, la- the lady in London really wants a drink, because I didn't say Emma. I said, that you're, I said you're in London. I didn't say it's your turn. No. Oh, sorry. Do just, you just stand I just, by I just and get back Chandra. In, I know, just get back. <laughs> <laughs> but tell that lady to get back in the queue. Florian, please. <laughs> so I'm going I'm Go to spend um, next week on an island, um, so I'd like some island wi- wines, which I'll probably get there. But but so I have I have this kind of wish for volcanic island wines. Although I'm not going to be on a volcanic island, but, but somehow this is like I, I mean I drank some of those on on Friday and I was kind of intrigued by it. So I'd like something refreshing with a volcanic taste, um, white preferably because it's going to be warm and and springy, summery. You you have to um, <clears throat> define volcanic taste. 
Oh, um, so I will think about it. No, we'll I, I can do it in Swiss German. It's like yeah. a, a bit, a bit schwefelig and a bit like uh, okay. it had a bit of sparkle to it. Even I have, I have already something. Good, good. Uh, okay, good. Great, good. Yeah. Where, where are you going? I'm going to Samos. Samos. Um, You're going to Samos. Yes. Okay. So yeah, volcanoes maybe not too far away, but but not 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 <laughs> but not, not, not there. there. <laughs> oh, I but wait. I, I believe there's uh, someone back in London who might have a question for Chandra. <laughs> Is Emma Nelson there? Uh, yes, <laughs> I am. Hello, Chandra. Hi, Emma. Um, so while some people are going to the Aegean Sea and having some sunshine, there is a general group consensus here in London that, frankly, we want something spring-like to drink. Um, there's a whole team demand here. We're all of the same thought. We want something spring-like to drink, but it is so cold here, we're still in our thermals. So could you give us something which strikes a balance, that gives us a little bit of hope in a glass, uh, while we're still uh, getting our thick socks out of the drawers? Wonderful hope in a glass. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I, I, you said there might be a lunch or a dinner um, around the, the Vinci Lindley household this afternoon. No, there might be, but I'm curious to hear from Chandra. Uh, for Pasquetta, which is Easter Monday in Italy, it's a typical day when everyone uh, enjoys the fine weather and goes and sits in a field with lovely blankets, sipping all sorts of delicious things and eating all sorts of delicious things. So a friend of mine brought along an organic bubbly rosé. And I'm not a big rosé drinker, but I thought that was rather exciting and uh, spritzy and I was wondering uh, what are your thoughts on that and do you have any recommendations Chandra? For an organic rosé bubbly bubbly that you might like. bubbly rosé yeah okay alright very good and uh, and uh, Nick in your recovery position uh, you see how you see how you see how the game goes uh, what's your request for Chandra? I, do. I, I, I was trying to think of the right way to phrase this but my girlfriend's away for two weeks so what says um, uh, I'm about to what, cut what, loose in the house on my own the wine that replaces her for two weeks <laughs> How many days till she returns? I think 12. So, oh, 12 days. Oh, yeah. He's got loads of time. Okay. Ch Chandra's enjoying this Let, challenge. Let's make a full symphony. <laughs> I, I'm into it. Let's do it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we will come back, uh, listeners, of course, uh, with the results to, to those requests uh, a little bit uh, later. Uh, Juliet, um, you, uh, you, there was a whole discussion about uh, TikTok uh, before we went on air. We were throwing around various statistics. You've got a, you've yeah. got a story uh, for us. Yeah, and also there's a bit of a. Re we'll talk about the revelation. One of our colleagues. Yeah, that was not, interesting. Not, exactly. not far away. Not on the to table be mentioned. As well. Okay. Same anyway. colleague that complained that the marathon was taking place too loudly in this city. She said okay. they're making too much noise. Like what? With their heaving and weave, no, wheezing as they run around the lake. To, I agree with you. No, I was. But, there's like people with like very sound systems. Yeah, too uh, much. She yeah, said too, too much. Too, so early in the morning. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Tell us what the Daisy, story. you shall remain unnamed. No. So there's this story called "Mental Health Shouldn't Be a TikTok Moment," and. We've all got our thoughts on TikTok and it would seem pretty, um, yeah, general knowledge would probably tell you that maybe it's not a good idea to self-diagnose on TikTok. But the author has autism herself and she says that when she was diagnosed many years ago, it was a costly procedure. Wait, wait what is the source of this? Story? It's the New York Times. Okay, I'm so okay. sorry. It's an That's opinion right. piece in the New York Times. And she said, uh, sorry. And when she says that when she finally got the diagnosis, cost a lot of money, but it was a relief for her because it explained a lot of her quirks, if you want, and perhaps her insecurities. Nowadays, because it costs so much what do you do you go on tiktok and she says there there are you know adhd ocd autism it can all be self-diagnosed so a lot of psychological neurological disorders and so many 
millions of views on things like six signs you may have ADD or six signs you may have OCD. And she says in some online circles, uh, such diagnoses are often treated like a sort of a badge of honor. It's a bit like a Zodiac sign or a Myers-Briggs type to say that, yes, I've got OCD. But she's saying, you know, mental health diagnoses are accidents of birth. And she says they don't make a central feature of a person's identity. So let's stop this. Everyone trying to self-diagnose themselves as something on a social media and just um, be yourself and be interesting and be worthwhile, even if you've got some idiosyncrasies. Okay, but at the very end of it, so she comes down on the side of probably go and talk to a doctor and, yeah. and let's go back to yeah. real real science. Yeah, but of course, none of us watch TikTok, right? Here at the table. No. Can we have a hands up? Florian? No, no. Even deleted it. Even deleted. Oh, okay. You do for geopolitical reasons. I just kind of monitored it supposedly for your, for your, to know for your children. children John, are you following them. a lot of uh, other people in the wine world on TikTok? Uh, I don't even have TikTok on my telephone. Yeah. Okay. There we I go. Don't. But someone around the table. This is interesting. We were talking. <laughs> we, we, we were discussing this because there was. A, I, I was watching Bloomberg the other day, and they they did a ranking of where is YouTube and how YouTube is sort of coming up the charts in terms of offering the same type of video content, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, average viewing time. So you know, TikTok is now at the top ninety. So the average viewing time is ninety five minutes a day. Chandra, can you imagine that? So someone spending an hour and a half on TikTok every day. That is the, that's the average, which is quite something. Snapchat, which of course was in a way you could say at the forefront of all of this many years ago, only 21 minutes yes. now. At bottom of the league table, all kinds of other yeah, brands uh, in, in, in between. So we were discussing this sort of 95 minutes. Desi at the far end of the table here, who looks after all of the audio, you know, she might have some skin in the game because she needs to be able you know, to keep up with all of the TikTokers talking about running radio studios, et cetera, I would imagine. <laughs> around the world. Around the world. And Florian, right, we were saying 95 minutes. So we said, Desi, go and see what is your average time. And what did you say? 95 minutes, spot on. Super, bam. as you said, super average as well. <laughs> super average. <laughs> which is really, really quite quite remarkable. We won't, we won't bring Desi into the conversation. However, however, I want to go back to mom monitoring because you're going to have a busy Wednesday. Mom monitoring. Yeah, you have a busy Wednesday with your kids at home. But how much do you, do you limit them on TikTok time? Or oh, not? it's a nightmare. Yeah, we try, we try. And the more you limit, of course, the more you're creating that craving. And um, no, there's a lot of back and forth, which any parent of any preteen or teen will tell you, it becomes a war zone. Right. And is there is there a um, is there an emerge? I mean, you <laughs> emerging. No, what no, I was going to say is is there an emerging Parachute. new channel that. Uh, that the kids are going to move no, on but it from. Dep- right it's now? all about the algorithm, isn't it? I so, know yeah. That. So, oh, something to replace. Yeah. yeah what's coming next? Come on, tell us. Because Daisy will parent. tell me because she's, she's the one probably, who monitors she's probably, it. For she's on that new, on that new she's channel. My go-to th- now. Thirty-seven minutes a day. I'm I'm sure. Something no, nothing, around nothing the corner. There. But it's all about the short attention span. So it's just short. 30 seconds, not even. And then you just keep flicking to the next one. In seek, seeking what exactly? Okay. Idea. Eternal yeah. wisdom. Goodness knows. Fucker. Chandra, you've um, been on your tour. Uh, next, I guess next issue must be upon us uh, quite soon uh, as well. Yes. So so yes. tell us what has, been, what has been happening in the world so, of Chandra, because we haven't seen you in a while. So uh, clearly there's been time spent in France, Portugal, goodness knows where. Exactly. So I, I last week I was just in Portugal and, and, and in, in, in Paris, but in Portugal it was very interesting. It was a jubileum of 20 years, Doro Boys. These are like five uh, wine-making fam- families. They're called the Doro Boys. Doro Boys. <laughs> and I met them when they, they were founded. Now we are all not any more boys and girls. We are all a little bit older. And But one, one member of the family is the family Nipport. And Dirk Nipport is my, one of my, my oldest wine friends. And, and we tasted 
Uh, wines back to the 1863. Can you imagine? We had port wines going 1863, 66, 90. And, and what, what is beautiful to see about that, um, it's like the opposite of all this TikTok, it's uh, that certain things need hundreds of years to show their beauty and you need time to put them away and to be patient. Of course, some people die on the way. <laughs> That's a detail. <laughs> but but it was I was so honored and privileged to have this this taste. It was just like an orchestra of aromas in my palate and just thinking how people were dressed at that time. You know, of course we as women we had a little bit another role, but but it was so different times and so many things had to happen to get to today and the bottles were still nice. So 1860 is this also a badge of honor or is as is it really as you said, it's a symphony, it's an orchestra, whatever it is on your palate. I mean, is, is it really sort of, or is it just, okay, it's 1863, no, 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 no. but it doesn't it taste really, so great. Because, of course, not, not it's a port wine. Not, not all wine styles can get so old, so it's a fortified wine. But but when it's good, it gets so many dimensions that you, you can hardly compare to anything else. Because it, you start to, like classical music, you know, there is, it, it goes without electronic. You have a, you have a many, many, many layers of music, of emotions, of, of, of sounds you hear, and it all worked without music, without electricity. You can do with candlelight and with good instruments. And the same is with the wine. When you have certain style of wines, you have the same reaction after the same pleasure. And tell us. Portugal as as a brand, I think if you if we rewind decades, you would sort of think about yeah cheaper cheaper table wines all over the world, etc. But of course, it's always been a country which has had uh, extraordinary production. However, it seems to have also just amped up in terms of uh, let's say broader recognition and and appreciation now. And is that sort of because of the Douro boys, or is it also at a government level? Is it because of the government of of, of, of Porto and the Douro region, or what's you know happening? you always need like a Douro boys like like somebody that like a, is an ambassador and goes and they they went to other countries and showed what they do in the country itself because the Portuguese I must admit are very modest people and they don't really show so much what they have they have also grapes that we don't have in other places they kept their old like Toriga Nacional Tinta Cacao and and they didn't go for Chardonnay and Merlot and Cabernet Sauvignon so they have their own grapes and they do a wonderful wine production and and you have a tremendously modern movement right now so of the children of these Douro boys that, that start, start to take over and it's really a place to discover a lot of new wines that are not so expensive, I must say. Which is, yeah, okay, well, anyway, maybe, maybe there might mm. be, I, I have a feeling there's maybe going to be a Portuguese recommendation uh, when we come back a little bit uh, later. Uh, coming up on the program, we're going to be, I said earlier at the start of the show, we're going to be talking to Gwen Robinson in Bangkok. I was wrong. She's going to be, she's up in Chiang Mai. Uh, in fact, we'll also be talking to our Tom Webb, who's at the International Journalism Festival in Perugia, but he's also back in the UK now. Uh, but someone who's also back in the UK is Emma Nelson with the news headlines. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. The US has evacuated all of its embassy staff from the Sudanese capital, Kharkiv. President Joe Biden has condemned the fighting between Sudan's rival commanders. More than 400 people have so far died. The Brazilian president says he won't please anyone with his views about Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Speaking in Lisbon at the start of his first visit to Europe since he was elected president, Lula said his aim is to build a way to bring both Russia and Ukraine to the table. Russia's advised its citizens not to travel to Canada because of what it calls are numerous cases of discrimination against Russians. Canada is one of the most vocal backers of Ukraine in the war against Moscow's forces. And a Dutch convent is appealing to wine lovers for help after a surprisingly successful grape harvest gave them an excess of 64,000 bottles of wine. Sister Maria Magdalena from the St. Caterina dal Nunnery said the hot and dry conditions last year caused a bumper crop. After a deal with the airline KLM, 
them fell through, they're now selling the bottles online to pay for the upkeep of the buildings. We didn't think beer in a convent was very appropriate, she said. Wine fits better. It is biblical and points to Jesus. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich. Okay, Emma, if this was a television program, we would be, we'd have swung the, the lens around to Chandra's face when you read that because she was thinking Netherlands, wine, nuns, um, all, all of it. Uh, but Chandra, did, I mean, I'm not sure if, if the, we know that, of course, wine production is moving further north uh, in Europe. Um, so, but at the same time, are, is the Netherlands on part of your wine tour? Usually? Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, not the ne- Netherlands. I was in in, uh, in Copenhagen, in Denmark. There, I I, I, I tasted some wines, and uh, it's it's a fact because of global warming, the the vineyard areas goes towards the pools more and more. So in the south, we are already very south. We are already close to pool, the pools. But in the north, it's going now, and we will have soon a lot of new wines. And for me, it's all new field to go to discover. Okay. Well, anyway, let's let's see what we can do, uh, Emma Nelson, uh, with all. All of uh, those nuns and all of their production. I mean, maybe another airline wants to pick it up if KLM uh, indeed does want to. I think, Emma, don't, it's a bit mean, isn't it? Because the national carrier, great story as well, helping out the nuns um, as well. I, I Listen, if, if I would have been the, the leader of KLM, I would, have, I would have gone for it. I just think that where KLM has, has missed out, we can step in. Surely we can all but head over. Start an airline or just buy the excess wine? I, I know a couple of people who know a few things about airlines. Um, but but 64,000 bottles of wine, surely there is a... And we could be helping the nuns build their build their, their lovely um, their ta- chapels and what have you. Surely, surely, surely we can go over there and help them. I, I, full, I fully agree. <laughs> Emma, it's uh, just uh, 15, uh, 15.33 uh, in Chiang Mai. It's uh, 10.33 here in Zurich and uh, 9.33 back in London. But uh, we're heading to Chiang Mai right now. Our, uh, one, of our, one of our Thailand correspondents, uh, Gwen Robinson, uh, is uh, up in the north of the country. Gwen Robinson, uh, Sawadikab, very nice to have you on the program. It's been a while. What are you doing up in the hills of Chiang Mai? Yeah. Well, may you ask, Tyler and Sawadikab. Um, what am I doing? I'm here for a, a conference and just flew in uh, to actually check whether it's as blazingly hot as it is in Bangkok. I think it's mildly less blazing, but uh, Thailand is really sweltering at the moment. And should we, should we ask what kind of conference it, it is? Is it sort of uh, r- related to um, maybe this program, the world of, of regional geopolitics? Is it, is it an ASEAN cultural summit, trade summit? Uh, no, there's, normally, Gwen, anytime you're at them, there's, there's normally ASEAN as a prefix uh, in front of whatever it may be. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm becoming known as the ASEAN girl. Actually, this time the focus is very much on Thailand's neighbor, Myanmar, and it's... Uh, It's about ethnic uh, media organizations from Myanmar, most of who are now in Thailand and making quite a lot of noise about uh, the horrific situation in Myanmar. So that's uh, on for the next couple of days. But I have just participated down south in some islands just off uh, southeast uh, Thailand's coast in a a mini gathering uh, uh, convened by the Thai government, which is trying to promote uh, less obvious tourist destinations. So... It's been quite a, a span of topics for me the okay. last few days. Okay, well, maybe we'll come back to the less obvious uh, tourist destinations maybe a little bit later. Uh, but of course, if you uh, are looking at the, the pages of, of the Bangkok Post uh, or and, and certainly any any media in the region, but also globally, uh, very important elections coming up um, in in Thailand, and we're just uh, a little over uh, two weeks uh, away. 
and it's it's amazing. Just uh, I'm not. It, it seems to be when I was looking at the Bangkok Post this morning, Gwen. It's that the first 20, 30 stories are dominated by all types of you know different moves, alliances, etc., being made by by the various uh, parties. But listen, this is a region you've been covering for quite a stretch. Uh, what's your take on uh, how this election is playing out so far? Right. Well, not wanting to date myself, but I have seen quite a quite a few upheavals in this country over the years. But uh, as you say, this is absolutely uh, a crucial poll. There's been a lot of criticism, I think, by some um, activist groups and human rights organisations uh, that it's neither free nor fair. But actually, within the broader, what you might call guided authoritarian democracy that Thailand is, there is definitely a sense of free-for-all. There's a lot of opposition uh, involvement in these elections, uh, plus, you know, some very active and vocal younger uh, people and parties. And uh, it's really uh, very, very marked how enthusiastic people are. As you say, I mean, not only the media is full of it, but everywhere you go, there are campaign posters, rallies, and, uh, you know, the airwaves are, are full of election-related issues. So I think it's very much um, something that is galvanising a lot of ties, even in rural areas. And there are big hopes that the opposition, after quite a few years of military-backed or related rural and very conservative ruling parties, there's actually some hope that the uh, opposition will make some inroads. And, and on that, we, we've seen some parties saying that they're not going to, to get into bed, of course, with, with other parties. We're talking about the opposition side. Of, but then we've also you know, seen um, already seeing a bit of coalition building um, as, as well. Uh, do you think, let's say, the current uh, ruling um, military regime, um, do, do you think they're, they're going to be shown the door? I mean, what are, what are the, if we can believe the polls at this point, uh, two plus weeks out, wow. uh, are there, are, do, do you think they're going to be in government or not, Gwen? Well, I think coalition building is a polite way to put it, Tyler. Um, you, could, you could call it a frenzy of backroom dealing, horse training, none of which we'll see the result of until well after the actual poll. And um, could the, I mean, the thing is, what's very clear is that there's quite a lot of parties. Um, there's a lot of uh, party hopping and deals being made. So what we're really looking at, I think almost certainly, is a coalition of some sort. But how unholy that coalition might be remains to be seen. So when we think, well, would the ruling party, which is currently dominated by the, the military, former military leaders who led the coup in 2014, um, would they be shown the door? No, they'll do a deal probably as long as they get a certain amount of passable votes for that 500-seat parliament. So all bets are off, but we could see um, the former, uh, what we call the Reds, the Pua Thai Party that was originally uh, founded by former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawat, who was ousted in the coup in 2006. Um, that party could well um, get a sizable portion of parliament and be in the strongest position to make deals, and we might see some very unholy alliances.
And, and Gwen, with that one, there's a, there's a rather, uh, let's say, controversial policy that they're talking up, which is this digital wallet, uh, which will be assigned uh, many thousands of, of, of baht within this digital wallet. And you'll be able to go and spend it within your community. Uh, and and there's, they see this as sort of as a stimulus program. Of course, anyone sort of hears about a digital wallet coming their direction. You know, maybe why wouldn't I put up my hand and vote for this party? Um, and particularly if I'm going to be, if I'm a, a small business owner, it's seems you know very very attractive to the whole and of course we know thailand in many ways is built on you know a very strong sme community uh up and down the country uh what, what how, how is that sort of being received um and I, certainly by the other parties well of course well let's just say every party i don't think there is one party that has not rolled out some sort of policy Maybe it's not as blatant as a digital wallet or what we could less politely call helicopter money, you know, basically, a, you know, a big gift being offered voters. But I think every party has uh, rolled out a policy of either introducing a new allowance or raising social security or, you know, benefiting communities in, in whatever way, which are straight out. I'm not going to call them bribes, obviously, but there's a lot of incentive under any party for some um, gains. I think, though, as you say, this digital wallet is uh, partly tailored to the SME, small and medium enterprise business, small business uh, community, which is a, a very um, strong constituency in Thailand. So it just depends what kind of voter base uh, each of these parties is going for. And, you know, as we all know, Thaksin, the former prime minister who founded the Reds, the Poor Thai, really went to this very solid northeast rural uh, base, often very poor, but uh, quite massive. And uh, that is how he uh, saw a series of landslide victories. So the, um, I think a lot of the parties are building in appeal to that, um, what you might call lower echelons of voters. But, you know, there's something for everyone in this uh, election. I assure you, I think every party has been working on these uh, policies to try to appeal to as broad a constituency as possible. Well, Gwen, it's a bit of a segue into uh, maybe what could be also a um, a, a new slogan for Thailand for tourism, something for everybody. Um, tell us uh, just very quickly before we go, those other islands uh, or outer islands uh, that, that uh, you were discovered are being promoted. I'm sure our listeners are wondering, okay, I, I bumped into some people yesterday who are on their way to Phuket uh, today, school holidays, right. not not for Juliet, mind you, but uh, for many others, and certainly in Zurich, school holidays uh, have kicked off. Uh, where should we be looking? Where uh, mm -hmm. Or at least what region or islands are promoting themselves as next destinations? Right. Well, look, honestly, I, thought, I was actually surprised myself having lived here for many years and never quite made it to what it's called Trat province bordering Cambodia on the southeast coast. But definitely anyone who's been living in Thailand or, or watching it and thinking about holidays, you've probably all heard that, you know, after Aeroflot commenced direct flights from Moscow to Phuket, it is absolutely the destination of choice in Asia for, I think, a lot of uh, Russians as well. You know, the Chinese are now have lifted uh, the curbs on travel. So we're seeing uh, a lot of Chinese tour groups uh, come back, not in the droves that they were pre-COVID, but it is steadily rising and uh, a lot of congestion in these resort areas. Someone described Phuket to me the other day as sort of semi-mental in some of the more popular areas and absolutely full of... I don't want to put anyone off. I'm sure that the exclusive resorts are still um, very serene. 
But uh, so the Thai government, I think, has been quite savvy trying to promote these little islands off the southeast coast uh, called, we went to Komak, and there's one called Kokut, and they're right next to a, a larger island called Kochang, which is more, slightly more on the beaten track. But these are all areas much harder to get to than just hopping a flight from Bangkok to Koh Samui or, or Phuket or even indeed Koh Phangan, which has become very popular and is very easy to hop a boat over from uh, one of the southern islands. So um, they're making a virtue of Koh Mak uh, being very difficult to get to and not having much uh, slick uh, facilities. Uh, you have to take a, a long boat ride. Uh, if you drive from Bangkok, it's five hours or six hours and... Uh, it is difficult. Once you're on the island, you feel you've earned it. You feel you're away from everything. It's only, you know, it's, it's markedly less developed than uh, these uh, main destinations. And that is what they're campaigning on. You know, get away from it all. They're not quite saying get away from the droves of Russian and Chinese tourists. But I think that's one of the messages. But uh, I, I think there's a lot of potential. And, and actually, this little island did win some big international tourism award in Berlin recently as amongst the top sustainable, um, you know, eco-friendly resort destinations in Asia. So they're really going big on this. Gwen Robinson, we're going to let you get back to your uh, Myanmar Focus conference up in uh, Chiang Mai. That's uh, Gwen Robinson, our Bangkok correspondent, but up in the north of Thailand uh, today. Sad face over on uh, Florian because you're thinking, oh, you're on your way to Samos, but you be could be going to Ko Kut, Ko Mak, Ko Chan. So many, many Ko's that I lost track of, but exactly. I'm sure, I'm sure they would be absolutely beautiful. <laughs> uh, okay, uh, a little bit earlier we were hearing about, of course, this helicopter uh, money, which sort of sounds like the world of of, of honey pots um, around uh, around uh, election time. Uh, it, uh, you you have a honey story, a, a honey a honey laundering story. Honey laundering, indeed. Tell I loved the headline in the FT. It's on page two. Beekeepers are buzz about honey. Honey laundering. So they're 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 waging war on honey trafficking. So so beekeepers. What part of the world? Where, where we're are we? We're talking about Europe. Okay. We're talking about Europe, led by Slovenia. Uh, Twenty European countries are demanding that there there be a clampdown on fraudulent honey. That would be mainly from China, a few other countries, including Ukraine, but mainly it is honey that has been laced with sugar syrup colorings and even just plain old water but essentially almost half of all the honey that you'll be eating in the eu has actually been adulterated so here we have the beekeepers saying you know we have to sell our honey you know, wholesale for sort of three euro fifty mm. a kilo and this stuff is coming in for less than a euro a kilo and it's full of sugar so it's not even giving you the health benefits that we all know honey has but yeah, because I thought you were going to say this is more like one of these olive oil stories that, all, that things were being relabeled. I guess there's a little bit of well, that. Well, there's because, mixing up. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. And that's what they want. They want traceability. They want the label on your honey pot when mm -hmm. you wake up in the morning and stir it into your granola. Yeah. You want to be able to know exactly what percentage of anything else is in there aside from your honeybees. If we went product. to your if we went to your ranch in Tuscany, if you... <laughs> Do people, do, do people have ranches in Tuscany? I think they should. Nobody has ranches. I we don't work I think, out I like, that, I, I think, no, But I, I like the idea. I like the concept as well. Do you have... Do you have uh, back of the ranch, we have no honey no, bees. No bees. No. No bees. No, no okay. hives, no. Just one honey. Just one honey on the ranch. <laughs> we'll leave it at that. We will. <laughs> uh, but we should stay in Italy, though, and head to uh, Perugia. But at least, well, we're going to head to Perugia via Surrey Hills uh, in, uh, in the UK because our deputy head of radio, uh, Tom Webb, is there. But he just came back from Perugia, uh, where the International Journalism Festival was on. And, Tom, you have all, um, well, you've got the full story of what was happening there. Maybe just set it up, uh, tell our listeners uh, what happens at the International Journalism Festival. And good morning, by the way. 
Good morning, and thank you for having me. And also thank you for sending me to Perugia, spectacular in spring. Who knew? So you can forget those islands in Thailand. Absolutely spectacular city, hosting the biggest annual media event in Europe. 250 sessions, over 600 speakers. It's a five-day program. It is still going on. It's Italian only today. Uh, it's completely free. So all of the events were standing room only, very, very popular. But the city is coping well with the influx uh, of numbers there. Uh, the, the sort of big theme of this year was press freedom. Um, we've seen that the record number of journalists imprisoned in 2022, 533 in more than 30 countries. Uh, and that's mostly Iran, China and Myanmar. And we're also seeing sort of coordinated, highly funded state supported networks of misinformation. We saw that in the Brazil election. And I spoke to Sebastian Lai, who's son of Jimmy Lai. He was talking about his father's arrest and the lack of coverage because other journalists in Hong Kong have been arrested and there hasn't been much international support, particularly from Great Britain, where uh, Jimmy is actually a citizen. However, the positive take is that a lot of investigative units have been set up around the world, particularly in Sao Paulo, where they do shoelace reporting, where they expose state-funded media, and also a new concept of hybrid media. We were talking about the elections in Thailand just now, the 14th of May. 14th of May is also the Turkish election. Yavuz Beydar, the editor of the Free Turkish Press, he is talking about how he uses journalists within Turkey uh, to report for him and using pseudonyms and reducing paperwork and using secure digital channels. He can actually prevent these freelancers from being revealed. So this is his way of using international media to report on countries where journalists are exiled. Maybe just if we, if we maybe changed um, tack a little bit, uh, Tom, from uh, which is, you know, I guess, of course, very key themes about press freedom um, and obviously uh, many human rights issues attached to it. How much of the festival is also focused on, let's say, the critical part for doing journalism today, which is finding revenue models, uh, which is being able to, of course, maintain readers, listeners, uh, viewers, uh, depending on what your outlet may be? Yeah, there's been a lot of that. And actually, there's been a lot of sessions on the rise of print, how you can actually drive year-on-year -year subscription by having a good print offering. So Matt Kelly, he's the founder and editor-in-chief of The New European. That was a weekly print newspaper and website that was set up in 2016 following the Brexit referendum. And he actually found the print aspect of his, his publication was what was driving money and membership and subscription. And afterwards, I spoke to Alan Rusbridger. He's the editor of Prospect magazine in the UK. He says this is because people are interested in slow news. They're fed up of constant barrages of news and headlines and notifications. So he wants the people to sort of start embracing the kind of uh, more intimate relationship with news and, and, and the world of print. He also spoke to me about the new phone hacking movie that's coming out and uh, Hopefully, he's getting an A-lister upgrade from Peter Capaldi, who played him last. And just uh, maybe stay, sticking with, um, we talk about shoelace journalism or, and shoelace reporting, uh, this 
friction that we have in many markets where you have a very, of course, strong uh, state broadcaster. Um, we, we can look at obviously the UK. You'd be very familiar with this because you're ex-BBC, Tom. That friction between you know, being a global news service, being a national news service, but then also in your national news service, you also, you, you do become a local news service as well. And I think, you know, you, you only have to go to Canada, the US, to Australia, almost anywhere in the world. And there's also then a, a bit of a crisis also in, in local reporting because oftentimes you have these big aggregators uh, who you know, are really sort of, you know, dominating uh, the clicks, uh, the eyeballs, uh, and, and and maybe, uh, may, just maybe, there still might be a print edition in the community, but, you know, very often not. Yeah, Patricia Campos-Mello, she described exactly that. She's a journalist operating in Sao Paulo. She says how difficult it is for local media to survive, uh, particularly when the larger uh, media broadcasters and outlets in Brazil were previously on the take by big companies and government. And she found it very, very hard for uh, indigenous population stories to be heard. Uh, and even when sort of big media were coming to report on stories in indigenous populations, they were only talking to the police or the authorities, where she's desperate to get these smaller broadcasters to, to hear from the in individuals. And yet back in the UK, the BBC have that problem as well. Uh, they seem to, according to the government, have a big monopoly on the regions. So a lot of their funding has been split from that to fund regional papers, but the regional papers don't have a uh, big audience and big eyeballs. So what we're seeing is the fragmenting of, of our biggest source of, of local media. So it is a problem that's affecting uh, all parts of the world. Tom, finally, just before we go, um, if you had to maybe give it a score or, or maybe just a mood, a feeling, uh, a sense of optimism um, around our industry, uh, people feeling, uh, you know, you, we can talk about so many sectors coming out of uh, the pandemic, these, you know, these odd three year, few years we've been through, uh, feeling very good, particularly if you look at the world of luxury goods, if we look at the world of, of hospitality in general, uh, yeah, that everyone, it's, they're really sort of coming out all guns blazing. Uh, but if you if you think about if you're a newspaper in New Zealand uh, or you're a radio station uh, in, in India, uh, how are you feeling? I think the feeling was really, really quite optimistic. Um, I, I, really, really lovely mood. A lot of very, very young brave, talented journalists, people from the Kiev uh, Independent, really, really inspiring. They've been on the front of, of Time magazine. And, and people looking forward to the future. I mean, the rise of AI, it's not something people are thinking, oh, it's going to take the jobs away from journalism. A lot of people were saying that AI is going to make journalism better. Lisa Gibbs from AP was speaking that it was going to remove the mundane. Uh, and it's also going to encourage people to work better across the world. So the Panama Papers, Papers, uh, more big media brands working together collaboratively and AI taking that really heavy lifting. And I also spoke to Jeff Kaufman uh, related to AI. He set up uh, Trint and Trint is going to translate podcasts uh, in many different languages. So people are going to get a bigger audience and it's going to cost them less and there's going to be less work involved. Very good. Or Tom Webb uh, reporting on the International Journalism Festival, just back from Perugia, but uh, talking to us uh, from Surrey Hills, not in Australia, Surrey Hills uh, in, in the UK. Uh, Juliet, I'm wondering if you had an Italian podcast, who would who would do the translation for you? Because I guess, are we saying translation, are we saying, or is it, it going to be dubbed? Voiceover, maybe it's maybe. voiceovers. I do a lot of voiceovers. You, I know I you do a lot do, of yeah, voiceover both work. Both languages. Um, as, it's as, as, well. as well. I don't mean to be a cynic, but it was interesting that uh, he was uh, saying, Florian, that of course, everyone felt very optimistic. Everyone felt very optimistic in Milan. Is that sort of the secret? You hold a major global <laughs> festival trade fair in Italy. 
in spring, everyone's going to feel good, yeah. right? Irrespective of the industry, I guess. <laughs> I, I, I think that's, I mean, Chandra as well. I mean, it, does, isn't Verona just happened or? It or, or just about, happened. It just, I think it, in general, we are happy when we're in Italy. Yeah, that's the thing, right? And it's spring, right? Yeah. And also in, in Verona's case, it's, it's, a, it's a wine festival as well. Okay. On that topic, we're almost at the end of the program. It means we have to do a little, uh, a bit of the, the whip round here to uh, hear Chandra's views on my various guests and their requests. Uh, for various uh, wine recommendations. Florian, uh, we're going to start with, with you on a Thai or maybe a Greek island, we believe, and what you want. Yes, please, let you, me know. So you go to, to, to Salmos? What exactly, Salmos. So I thought you wanted something volcanic, refreshing, so we, I take you to Santorini. I just tasted uh, a few new pet nut wines and one I got from Santorini, from the Vasili Vineyard, and it's really what you need. You have the volcanic mineralic touch. Uh, it's refreshing, uh, crisp, and with little tiny bubbles, you will drink more than one bottle. Beautiful, thank you. But, uh, this is just, we're on Santorini, this is not an Asiatico? Or, it's or an Asiatico. It, it is an Asiatico. Pet, pet nut is like this old way of doing sparkling wines when you, when you just don't, we, you leave some yeast in the bottle, you close it, and then with the sugar it ferments by itself. So it's, it's a gentle, refreshing w- Will it cause like uh, political tensions between the islands if I drink from the wrong island, or is that okay? I think just stay away from Turkey. <laughs> Maybe that's the only issue. Exactly. Okay, Julia, we'll say on the on the fizzy theme, you were talking... Bubbly rosé. Bubbly rosé is going back to Easter Monday, even Picnic, though we're many weeks Tuscan beyond. Hills. So Tell I don't us. know, when, when I see you, I also think about the Oscars, and I know I see a lot of glamour. Oh my God, so much glamour. I love I mean, that. Even so, in Chunky Knits, amazing. So, <laughs> so I, I will stay with Bubbles, and I think you should try from the Ferrari winery from the Trento Doc. They have a nice rosé maximum. And um, they also, be, I mentioned Oscar because they are the new Oscar supplier when there's the Oscar show. So why don't you go safe? I'm going for Rose, Ferrari. Rose Ferrari. Right it's, away. It's, you know, it's amazing these endorsements that some of these Italian companies are going for. Have you seen Intimissimi, the new face and body? Jennifer Intimissimi? Lopez. Jennifer Lopez yeah. on massive billboards everywhere. I mean, you know, you know Intimissimi is a big company, but that's, like, that's a big check to write, don't you think? Big one. Okay. <laughs> Shout out to 50 pluses. I mean, look at her, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, she, she is. Hasn't come yeah, she's 50 plus, right? She's 53. She's 53. Jennifer Lopez is 53. Emma Nelson. Hello. Nowhere near was 50. not. <laughs> <laughs> right, that clear. But she, but she, she, she that, Emma Nelson was the, was the woman sort of banging her trolley, trying to get in front of Florian. But anyway, hello, Emma. Hello, Tyler. R- remind us, what are you looking for oh, as it's, you're loading up that trolley? I'm loading up. Well, I mean, if Nick Manese has got 12, 12 days without his partner. I think he's ordering a case. I'll have a case as well, please. Um, it was hope in a glass, wasn't it, Chandra? Because we are freezing cold here in London, uh, but I need to feel spring like as I drink my wine in my cashmere bed socks. But you know, after two, three glasses, any, everybody feels spring-like. So I have, as, I'm, as I'm just back from Portugal, I discovered a very nice range of wines. It's called Nat Cool Wines. It's done also by the Neports. And they're always filled in a liter bottle. Emma, a liter bottle. So you have a li- enough. A little Lit- bottle or a no, liter. No, no, liter. That's a liter. liter it's good bottle, for you. Fine. Thank and you, he Chandra. Does, and the important is that he does it in different regions of, of Portugal. And one he does, a, a, it's called Trudi Ruby Port. Trudy Rude be poured. Well, yeah, it's, it's, I can't even say it when I'm sober. <laughs> <laughs> and I think you should start with Trudy Ruby Port with the whole team. I like the fact that we're going straight for the port and a name that I can't say. I think that's that. I think I'm immensely grateful for that. Thank you, Chandra. Okay, very quickly between Nick and Sean, you got 45 okay. seconds. Tell us what very we were simple. It's uh, it comes from Chateau Valandro, Saint Emilion. It's a range called Bad Boy Siri. They're different lines. Oh, how does that sound, Nick? <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to brand myself as the bad boy of Monaco for a while now so I quite like that 
for bad boys. Okay, is that going to is that going to fit the bill? And, uh, well, I mean, it's a replacement for my girlfriend. Uh, so it's it's. It, do you think I, I need to know from Chandra if that's going to work? Well, it's your recommendation, actually. So, 100, percent it is. I mean, I'm, I'm, I say it's very nice. They're naughty wines. So okay, naughty should, wines. Well, that's get into them. Free. I hope my girlfriend's not listening because I think that's probably going to sum up my week. Very good, <laughs> Nick Manis. Uh, thank you very much for that. Also, Juliet Lindley, Florian Egley, uh, Sean Kurt, also Emma Nelson back in London, and Tom Webb and Gwen Robinson out uh, elsewhere in the world. Our producers today, Desiree Bentley, and of course Emma Nelson, our studio manager in Zurich, also Desiree Bentley, with her 95 uh, minutes of TikTok a day as well. I should add, and uh, also in London, Nora Hall, also looking after audio for us. Uh, I should just say to our listeners, we are going to be coming to you next Sunday from Asheville. So uh, same uh, little slightly time shift as well. So uh, that's going to be at uh, at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. So of course, that means uh, much later in the day elsewhere across the world. And if you're in New York on Wednesday, book signing at McNally Jackson at Rockefeller Center, our new book of Spain. So hopefully we'll see our U.S. uh, listeners and readers there. Goodbye.